Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our TOSIC Phase I and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Robbie Hanna, Chair of Pediatric Hematology, Oncology, and Bone Marrow Transplantation at Cleveland Clinic Children's. Dr. Hahn is here today to talk to us about best practices for pediatric and young adult cancer patients who have autism spectrum disorder. So welcome. Thanks for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. So maybe just to start out, uh, give us a little feel for what, what is it you do here at the clinic? Uh, Del, uh, I do supervise our department of uh, pediatrics, hematology, and oncology, where we have really a diverse group of physicians and providers who take care of uh, many infant children and young adults with hematology and uh, cancers. And my specific interest is actually uh, kids with uh, genetic diseases and also high-risk leukemias who may need a bone marrow transplant as a life therapy, uh, life-saving therapy for this disorder that they may be uh, resistant to regular chemotherapy or uh, this genetic and inherited disease can be uh, usually cured with a bone marrow transplantation from another healthy person. Well, today we're going to talk about sort of a unique group of patients, uh, pediatric young adult patients who have a cancer, but then they also have um, autism spectrum disorder. We're going to call that ASD throughout the rest of the podcast. Both are difficult. And so how do you approach that? So how, do, how, does, how have you developed some practices to 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 really treat two very, very difficult disorders. I think this is really very important topic because we are seeing increasing number of uh, patients who have uh, autism spectrum disease and also diagnosed with cancer. We know from uh, the CDC that there is increased incidence of a patient with ASD. And the problem with this, that it is really not one disease. This is a spectrum, as you alluded to in uh, your introduction and individual with autism spectrum disease have widely diverse abilities and needs uh, ranging from those who are nonverbal with severe anxiety associated behavioral challenges to this capable of understanding their illness, but who often experience emotional rigidity, inflexibility, and misunderstanding of the social situation. And uh, this presentation varies significantly from person to person. So the key in how we deal with them when they develop cancer or any life-threatening disease is highly individualized assessment, in my opinion, and the intervention are needed. Like simple even question, how are you feeling or why blood is going to be drawn? It can sometimes trigger anxiety and uh, severe emotion that it could make the care of them very challenging. So understanding this triggers understanding the patient and their families is key for us as a caregiver to be able to adapt our care and sometimes even our treatment to be able to deliver the care that this patient needs. So how do you start? Do you do you normally start with the parent or the caregiver? Do you start with the, the physician who may be managing the ASD? Um, how, how do you approach that? Because you're you're, you're absolutely right. There's, there's a tremendous range of, of things you may be dealing with, and it's different in each case. So how do, you, how do you start the process? 
I think it is really a team effort and a take village. But the key in our work, we call it individualized oncology support plan. So not only the treatment, it's key here, the support. So we gather usually our psychologist, uh, Dr. Kate Eshelman, in addition to our child life uh, specialist, and meet with the family and the caregiver and try to get catalog of basically individual strength, abilities, competencies, and also get a list of what's the individual anxieties, behavioral, and we try to map them to possible trigger events in either their life or what we could imagine as a therapy around. And uh, trying to build on this, and we also have a great resource at uh, our autism school at the Shaker Rehab. So we uh, very frequently reach out to her, and sometimes we will have a a patient meet, our caregiver meet with them, and occasionally they will come and come to us here in the infusion center to observe the family and the patient interaction and give us uh, clues to how could we really change our approach. Simple things as really having them the first thing to come and have them in a quiet room and instead of trying to do the blood draw in the infusion center or in the lab, sometimes can really help them to start their day on a better. We sometimes change really. We, we always thought that getting them early so they can eat if they have a sedation so they don't remain NPO for a long period seems uh, counterintuitive to this family who always observe their child, for example, like to sleep, doesn't wake up until nine, and we have to modify a little bit our approach to get them later in the day. So the key and the starting it is working with the family who are going to be your best resource, and then our support team to come with the individualized oncology support plan. And then is that a plan that as you move through treatment, there are periodic reassessments to, to fine-tune that plan? Or is it is that kind of done in a, in a standardized way or kind of as, as an as-needed way? So we always in oncology always think about the standardization. And I think that's really become so hard when we deal with this patient. And you are absolutely true uh, that this plan will change. For example, in a patient with a leukemia, their first phase of therapy can be inpatient, then they go outpatient, then they may need admission. And these circumstances can change. And even the patient adaptation and behavior could change as they get exposed more. So we absolutely reevaluate that. And uh, we learn uh, and we have had patients who will become mute. They will not talk in the hospital, period. They wouldn't even respond, how's your pain? So we have to come up with a different approach than because this child has not been exposed to this circumstance in the past. So we will really have to, at that time, come up with a newer and a try. And sometimes we try many things until we find out. And for example, I always love to say, we had one of our patients love traffic light. So we brought traffic light to the room, patient room, and we use the green and the red as a way to tell us if he is in pain or not, because otherwise that patient would not absolutely communicate or express any emotion to us. Yeah, that's uh, communication is so important. So as we treat patients, it's, you know, how are they tolerating the treatment and what kind of symptoms they have from their disease? And so 
that seems like it's a particularly difficult challenge. We definitely, that's our biggest struggle, especially with the inpatient service. I think the outpatient where there is a primary team, they tend to know the patient well and the patient start to feel confidence and they can communicate. And I always try to remind people that on 44% of patients with autism spectrum disease have an average IQ or even higher. So it is the expression that they may lack. It is the coping that it is hard for them. So it is our duty to try to find out what's their strength. And some patients will communicate through drawing. Some patients really like music. And that's where the individualization of that, even communication becomes important. And uh, we luckily have really great support team from a music and art therapy that enable us to serve this patient uh, every day of the week when they are inpatient to help us communicate with them. How about individualizing the treatment itself? Are there uh, cases where you may try to push to an oral therapy or you mentioned you know, challenges of inpatient therapy. And so can, do you sometimes try to make adjustments in the types of treatment? Excellent question. Uh, we, we have done that occasionally uh, in patients where we think it's not going to compromise uh, on the ultimate goal, which is a cure with the minimum side effect. So a patient with a Hodgkin disease comes to my mind where we have really many different uh, type of chemotherapies that they can achieve a reasonable and similar overall survival, but they may have a different side effect profile. So we try to choose medication that they may, or treatment plan that they focus more on outpatient and have less chance of fever, neutropenia, and requirement for uh, inpatient. The second thing, it is actually the steroid itself in the treatment can sometimes trigger uh, uh, some uh, emotional burst or other problem behaviorally. So we're trying to avoid treatment plan that they may have steroid in it and come up with other medication that focus on all chemotherapy. Uh, but there are diseases. Unfortunately, they may have uh, poor prognosis and there is really one therapy that it is offered clear benefit that becomes harder. And we will have an honest discussion and with the parents and family to define the goals of the care. If it is cure, we will try to support them through that. But it's equally important to pay attention to the quality of life for this patient. What about follow-up and more long-term care survivorship? Do, do you continue to, to sort of tweak those plans really pretty much throughout the, the course of their therapy and follow-up? Uh, absolutely. I think we continue to evaluate and reevaluate. So we try to do most, most of the survivorship follow-up virtually for them. Many of them do not like to come to the hospital, even if it is an outpatient. So we have used a lot of virtual visit uh, with many of these patients and minimize the intervention unless it's absolutely necessary. We also, in our survivorship, we really incorporated a lot of genetics counseling. We, uh, and especially with the help of genetics uh, in uh, Cleveland Clinic, who are really one of the pioneer in cancer genetics and Dr. Karis Ng, has uh, found a lot of uh, overlap in the genes that predispose to autism spectrum disease and patients who have cancer, like P10 genes or some other genes in the RAS pathway. 
and we're trying to uh, do more genetic counseling to help them have more definitive diagnosis. And we even doing some clinical trial for this patient uh, in terms of trying to target their autism spectrum disease that they may have not been linked to specific gene. So certainly uh, we talked about how you know, parents, caregivers can be helpful in terms of understanding um, behaviors and ways to communicate and things up front through the programs that you have set up and the teams you have set up. Are there, uh, are there support for those families and caregivers? Because clearly there, there's challenges in terms of being a, a caregiver in that situation. Do, do you have support for them as well? Uh, I think we can definitely use more support. We have a sibling program that tries to help their uh, uh, siblings that they may be uh, also struggling with that. We extend the psychology support and uh, to the caregiver, the parents, and we help to have session with them. But I think those are really the heroes. I can't imagine and I know how much they really struggle not to have only one disease, but two diseases and through that journey. And I wish we have more uh, to offer them uh, to help them through that journey. What are some of the biggest gaps that you see? What, what, where, where do we need to make the biggest progress in terms of taking care of the patients that have these sort of two disorders? Uh, I think really many of this young adult uh, patient uh, still needs more help and services. I think many of the services provided here are tailored to children, and absolutely we're trying to fill the gap for the young adult. But so many of older adults or uh, can be sometimes a challenge, and having more resources in the psychosocial team, having more uh, psychologists, more art therapies, I think would be beneficial. The second uh, gap that I think it's important, it is even also uh, the tailoring the therapy. We are learning more and more through precision medicine uh, and we're finding genes uh, that they could be linked and whether these uh, genes can be targeted. Uh, so we could change the therapy from what we offer to other patients to patients who could have a predisposition and could be targeted. I think that's where clinical trial is needed. So we would need more clinical trial specific to this patient and see if we can make their therapy better tolerated for them. And I guess when we think about the therapy changes, um, I mean, is there a suggestion that with the, the genetic changes that take place and as an underlying cause of both disorders, um, that there are differences in efficacy of some of the therapies? Uh, maybe tolerance is one thing, but do, do we notice there's a difference in how well they work? It's a very good question. We have not seen it. Differences in efficacy, I think it is the tolerability and the side effect. Uh, there has been few uh, non-conclusive publication about the link about autism spectrum disease and the genes that they are uh, discovered there and cancer because many of them uh, uh, are seen in cancer, but there is publication from Iowa University that showed uh, that these patients are not at increased risk of uh, uh, cancer. So I don't know, and the literature is still really non-conclusive in terms of one, the incidence, and two, in terms of the efficacy. We, the, despite the increasing numbers, I don't think we have enough to say about the efficacy, especially if we are changing the plan occasionally. 
it make it harder to assess the efficacy for this patient population. So this is a very resource-heavy endeavor. Um, what happens in the community? Um, or do most uh, patients who have both ASD and, and um, a cancer, are most of them referred to you and your group? Or how, what, what is, uh, how does that generally handled? I think it depends on the disease spectrum and how functional is uh, that uh, child or young adult. So we tend to see many of the uh, nonverbal or the low-functioning patient referred to us. And my assumption based on the incidence of autism spectrum disease, that there are many of these patients are probably served in the community and they are not coming to a comprehensive cancer center like us. Are there uh, registries or anything? You mentioned trials before. Are, um, are there any institutions that um, have sort of gotten together to do registries to help out with this? Or is it too diverse to, to really consider doing that? I know of one organization that it is trying to gather patient uh, a natural history and gather more data about their long-term follow-up, but I am not aware of registries specifically to cancer in this patient. And so if uh, people are listening in, to, we have some physicians that might want to develop a program. What kind of, what kind of guidance would you give them? I think you do need to meet with your psychosocial team, uh, know the resources that you could provide for this patient, uh, starting with the social work and the psychologist, and then uh, have to individualize and try to get help further, if it is an art therapy or music therapy. But the two essential it is the social work and psychologist to help you get to know the patient and the skills. We have tried to even as a provider, we actually took lessons and some of uh, communication methods. It's called cognitive picture rehearsal, positive coping scene, where it helped us to uh, really teach the child uh, or their caregiver with expectation of and rehearse what it is going to be the prank, the end of the treatment and the requirement. So those are uh, I think the core element, and uh, then there is going to be an additional resources based on that patient uh, needs. Because you had mentioned things like art therapy and music therapy, and those are not easy things to necessarily establish. It sounds like you have a very cohesive team. We definitely believe that it is important to treat the patient, not the disease. And uh, many of uh, these diseases have emotional ramification, and we have to try to pay attention to this emotional and psychosocial events in addition to the medical problem. Well, some great insight you've provided. So any additional comments? No, thank you so much for having me. And I'm glad uh, this podcast can really shed a light on this uh, combined uh, journey of patients with ASD who have cancer. Well, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our Consult QD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. 
Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.